Hi, everyone. Steve Shepard here with the Natural Curiosity Project, the place for stories that matter. I've got a slightly longer episode today, but it's about a topic that deserves a bit of extra time, so I've broken it into a couple of pieces. Hope you enjoy them, and I hope you find them useful. For several decades now, I have spoken and written and done a lot of deep research about the topic of human generations and how they relate to society and the workplace. There's a lot of myth and legend about them, myth and legend that is at best misleading and at worst actually kind of dangerous. It manifests as comments like, well, they may be millennials today, but thankfully they'll grow up and become baby boomers in a few years, as if some kind of generational membership and behavior were temporary, or as if one generational model is the social equivalent of training wheels, while an older generational model is a racing bike. Trust me, that ain't the case. I love this topic because by studying it, I have learned a great deal about my own kids, about their kids, about how companies work or don't, about how relationships grow or decay, and a heck of a lot of information about myself. So in this episode, I'm going to explain what generations are, how they came to be, how they differ, and something that might surprise you, how they repeat every 80 years or so. That's right. It turns out that there is a finite set of distinct generational models or archetypes, four of them to be exact, and while we give them different names to keep them separate in our minds each time they come around, every 80 years, the cycle repeats. But there's something else I want to discuss as well, something that relates really to generational theory in sort of a peripheral way. It has to do with generational handoff, the transition that gradually happens when generations age out in the workplace. And I'm not referring to any kind of ageism here. I'm referring to the natural transition that happens when one generation slowly retires because it's their time to do so, and the next generation and those that follow move up in the hierarchy. It isn't clear and easy, but it is a real, although somewhat messy, process. Nature abhors a vacuum. When the most senior generation taps out and leaves the office for the golf course or wherever they end up, others ascend to fill the void. That process happens because it has to. So before I finish the program, I'm going to talk about that. So here's what I'm going to cover. What constitutes a generation and how they work, who the current generations are, who are really alive today, and how they differ, the generational cycle and why it's important not only to individuals but also to organizations, and finally, what we all need to know and understand about the different generations so that we can appreciate and benefit from them. This is a wonderful topic, and I think you'll enjoy it. So let's start with this. Whether we like it or not, the market is in charge. As a provider of service, any kind of service, the best you can hope for is to understand the players in the market better than the competition. Give the customer what they want, anticipate their wants, needs, and demands, and be as multimodal as possible in whatever way you engage with them. Years ago, Tom Peters, who you probably know by now is one of my personal business heroes, used a quote in his book, In Search of Excellence, that I have never forgotten. It says, Probably the most important management fundamental that is being ignored today is staying close to the customer to satisfy his needs and anticipate his wants. In too many companies, the customer has become a bloody nuisance whose unpredictable behavior damages carefully made strategic plans, whose activities mess up computer operations, and who stubbornly insists that purchased products should work. The truth is, 
customers want to be actively involved in the relationship that they have with the service that they receive from a service provider. And by the way, that service provider can be something as big as a telephone company or a semiconductor manufacturer or as small as a local restaurant or a convenience store. For a traditional legacy organization, that translates into giving up control. There's no other choice, of course. The enterprise has to be willing and able to connect with customers in different ways as part of a multimodal customer service experience. That means blowing up their traditional script used in the contact center, allowing customers to engage using email, texting, SMS, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, even a personal telephone call, in addition to engaging with the contact center operator. The customer makes the rules now more than they ever have before. So who is the customer today? I mean, obviously, it's anyone with a working wallet and presumably a pulse, and it would be irresponsible to ignore the generational nature of changing market demographics, particularly the impact of two generations in particular, the millennials and the plurals. But before we dive into the details of these two groups, let's first define what a generation is, because there are all kinds of myths and legends associated with them. A generation is defined as a group of people who share a common place in history and who therefore develop a common set of beliefs and values that tend to be common across the entire generation. It's often said that generations create history and history creates generations, and that's true. And while there are always exceptions, the law of large numbers and cohort theory tell us that if you look at a sufficiently large population, you'll always be able to identify behavioral characteristics that are statistically common and relevant. This is really important. If you understand generational theory, then you're far better equipped to understand human behavior, market dynamics, politics, and a host of other things. Make no mistake, this is not pop psychology. This is real. Now, from work done by people like William Strauss and Neil Howe, the first people who wrote books about generations, and later by my friends Morley Winograd and Mike Hayes, we know that generational change is a repeating 80-year cycle of four roughly 20-year periods, with each of the 20-year quadrants representing a generation. So over the course of 80 years, we get four wildly different generational cohorts driven by a range of unavoidable forces. Now, here's the deal. As a general rule, societies tend to pass through four sort of behavioral phases. The forces that drive these phases include the evolution of social values, political power shifts, balances in things like demographics and social makeup, economic upturns and downturns, and what I like to call black swan events like 9-11 or Columbine or the COVID-19 pandemic. The phases blend one into the next, like the seasons of life, with each season lasting about 20 years, all together making up the 80-year or so cycle that I just described. Now, the first cycle, by convention, tends to be a time of social strength, of growth and optimism, during which business and government institutions grow stronger and the individual's influence weakens as they place more trust in the institutions that guide them banks, healthcare organizations, large corporations, and so on. During this period, the individual worker becomes relatively anonymous and places his or her trust in the institutions that guide society along its path. I mean, think back to the 1950s and 60s when it seemed like everybody worked for a big oil company or a bank or IBM or AT&T. 
That was the period when comedian Bob Newhart released his album called The Organization Man that made fun of corporate America. That was during the time of my parents' generation, called the Silent Generation. Now, during that period, a new social norm emerged, and in fact it emerges every time this generation comes along, as the strength of the previous norm declines. This happened during the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy presidencies in the United States when the U.S. became powerful and confident, but also became highly conformist. A societal Borg sort of formed as everyone marched to the dance of the big corporation. This was the Leave it to Beaver era, when the corporate uniform was the white button-down shirt, dark blue suit, dark tie, maybe a stripe or two if you're feeling particularly zippy that day, a briefcase, and hat. At the same time, though, a feeling of spiritual emptiness gripped the country that prompted follow-on generations to seek increasingly greater meaning in their lives. Now, the second phase of the generational cycle is a period of realization that bubbles just below the surface, sometimes for a very long time. During this period, the individual, who has become somewhat anonymous with the vesting of social power into the institutions, begins to question the social fabric that led to this sense of anonymity, this sense of the individual being subordinate to the organization, what some sometimes call the cog in the machine scenario. People begin to question the social mores, and the period often becomes loud and passionate. Prompted by a sense of spiritual emptiness that begins to kind of creep in, attacks on the existing social order occur as new values arise and begin to take shape. I mean, think about the rise of movements in the late 60s and early 70s like Earhart Seminar Training, which you may know as EST, and LifeSpring, both of which targeted this hunger for self-affirmation. During the Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon presidencies, it manifested as the sometimes violent unrest of the 1960s and the political turmoil of the 70s. A certain kind of moral courage kind of came into play as the values of the past were openly rejected, and a sense of personal liberation and a glimmering of individual power emerged once again. Suddenly, the individual began to matter more than the big corporation. Now, during phase three, Society is in wholesale revolt against the institution. The individual rises in importance and rejects the anonymity of the corporate workplace. A search for meaning strengthens as the institution weakens. Individuals become stronger and more influential elements of the social fabric. Institutions weaken as they decline in terms of public trust and the values of the inbound generational regime take root and diminish the incumbent values. As the quest for meaning peaks, a sense of moral restlessness grips the country. The controversial presidencies of the elder George Bush, Bill Clinton, and Bush the Younger, not to mention Donald I, fall into this category. And finally, phase four arrives wrapped in a strong sense of change. This is often a period of secular crisis in society, a period when individuals go in search of relevance in their lives. This final phase is typically characterized by crisis and social emergency, a time of strong social upheaval that continues as the new social infrastructure starts to take effect. George Bush's second term experienced this with the devastation of 9-11 and the ensuing and still ongoing crisis in the Middle East. These four evolutionary periods have been cycling for as long as historians have been studying cultural change. 
and as might be expected, sociologists give each generation a name. The most recent four generations, in the same order as the four phases that I just described, are the silent generation, born roughly from 1925 to 1945, the baby boomers, born from 1946 to 1964, Generation X, born from 65 to 81, and the millennials born between 1982 and 2004. Another generation, a fifth generation, is now in play called the plurals, for reasons that we'll discuss later, and their birth years are roughly 2005 to 2025 or so. Now, take note of the fact that we've just named five generational archetypes. But over the course of the last few paragraphs, we described four generational types. So let me address that. Imagine a clock face for just a moment. At 12 o'clock, we have the silent generation. At 3 is the boomers. At 6, Gen X. And at 9, the millennials. But we also just introduced the plurals, which is a fifth generation. And in fact, they begin the cycle once again. If you look at the clock face, the next generational position in the cycle after the millennials is a return to 12 o'clock, which is where the silent generation is. And in fact, in every way you can imagine, the plurals are a repeat of the silence, who are, as I said, my parents' generation. Now, if you think about this, a thought may occur to you. If the plurals are a repeat of the silent generation, and they are, then it should make sense to you that the millennials should in fact be a repeat of whichever generation came before the silent generation, way back when the 19th century gave way to the 20th. And in fact, they are. The millennials are identical in every way to the hero generation, the generation that rebuilt the world following World War II, the generation that Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation in his book of the same name. This is a generation of fixers, a generation determined to right the wrongs left behind by the prior two generations. At least, that's how they see their role, and they are extraordinarily good at it. As we said, every generation is born for about 20 years, after which the next generation arrives. But it's not an exact science. There's always overlap between them. People born during this overlap period are called cuspers because they're born on the cusp of a generational handoff. For example, people born between 1960 and 1966 or so are baby boomer Gen X cuspers. Cuspers are really interesting people. They tend to make good leaders and good managers because they tend to have a foot firmly planted in each of the two generations, and they can view the world through the eyes of both. Now, we're going to look at each of the four generational archetypes by actually looking at the most recent examples of them the silence, the boomers, Gen X, and the millennials. And then, of course, we'll also talk about the plurals because they're very important. As we're going to see, each of these generational groupings has characteristics that follow them throughout their lives. Baby boomers, born roughly between 46 and 64, are ideological to a fault, highly judgmental, unwaveringly and rigidly focused on values, and often more than a little selfish. I say this with authority because I are one. <laughs> they feel an inordinately strong need to be right, and they will often argue their own point of view unceasingly in meetings to ensure that they're heard even when they know that someone else's position is better. When it comes to work, they are driven. These are the children of the silent generation, people who grew up during the Great Depression, many of whom saw their own parents' accumulated wealth disappear in one single fateful moment in 1929. 
As a result, they pounded into their boomer children the belief that wealth can be fleeting and it therefore should be amassed and diversified. And the only way to do that is through a commitment to work, doing whatever it takes to get and keep a job. Baby boomers are the dual income generation, a generation for whom work is life and for whom the line between the two is ephemeral. In fact, boomers tend to define themselves by their work. If you want to see evidence of this, introduce yourself to someone who you think is a boomer, and during the handshake, watch what happens. The first question out of their mouth will be, so what do you do? It's not going to be, do you have a family? Do you have a dog? What are your hobbies? Work for boomers is something they are, not something they do. It's a key element of how they assess an individual. Now, their silent generation parents, who again were born roughly between 1925 and 1945, also instilled in them a strong set of values that, good or bad, stayed with them for the rest of their lives and permeated everything they did. The silent generation, every time a version of it comes around in the 80-year cycle, exhibits one singular overarching quality. They're all about compromise to achieve societal goals. They'll take one for the team if their willingness to compromise moves the team forward. In other words, put your head down, do the work, don't complain, don't make waves, you're lucky to have a job, is what boomers heard growing up, which explains to a certain extent their need to be heard, to be seen as valued individuals. Boomers were indulged as children, but were also driven by the deeply instilled values that their parents passed on to them. When boomers did something dumb as kids and got into trouble for it, more often than not, the admonition from their parents was, well, I hope you've learned something from this. In other words, you did a dumb thing, but you're smart enough not to do it again. Interestingly, boomers also have a love-hate relationship with authority of all kinds. Think about the 1960s, Berkeley, Kent State, the Blue Meanies of Chicago, the tyranny of Vietnam. These are the people who smoked so much dope in the 60s that they don't even remember the 60s, yet if they catch their own children smoking it, they ground them for the rest of their lives. Baby boomers are perfectionists by nature, somewhat spiritual, rule-driven, and often fairly community-oriented. They're pretty optimistic and involved in life, concerning themselves with youth, their own as much as that of their children, and with health and wellness. It's easy to see how much influence boomers still wield and how consumed they are with youth. Just take a look at the second-tier television channels, but don't watch the programming, watch the commercials. These are channels that often run older shows, which were popular with boomers when they were younger. Virtually 100% of those commercials that advertise products advertise products that either harden something or soften something, both concerns of aging boomers who don't have any interest in surrendering gracefully to the reality of getting older. I'll let you think about that for a moment. Boomers are also somewhat schizophrenic when it comes to relationships. As a generation, they have the highest divorce rate in history, often because work superseded everything else. The all-important work-life balance is often lacking in their lives. And as I said earlier, for boomers, work is something they are, not something they do. So now let's turn our attention to Generation X. They're the generation that follows the boomers, born between 65 and 81, and are strikingly different from the baby boomer predecessors. 
I'm generalizing now, but they tend to be more skeptical and cynical about life, as you might expect. These are the children of the boomers, after all. Because both of their parents worked, their perception is that they grew up in the modern-day equivalent of a Charles Dickens novel, raising themselves and living on their own. As one Gen Xer said to me, only kind of joking, when I was a kid, I lived on the street and had to kill small animals to eat. These are the latchkey kids who came home from school to an empty house and had to fend for themselves because both of their parents worked. As you would imagine, they became self-reliant, action-oriented, independent, and highly self-accountable. They're also far more balanced in terms of managing the division of time between their work and their personal lives. A typical interaction at work between a baby boomer boss and a Gen X employee might go something like this. Look, boss, I understand that I get paid. I have to work hard for you for eight hours. After that, I go home. And as for this misplaced pathological idea you have that I'm going to carry a pager and a second cell phone so you can call me after hours, that's just not going to happen. So imagine what happens when a driven baby boomer for whom work is life manages a group of Gen Xers for whom work is only part of life. This is usually when the boomer's hair starts to catch on fire. Now, I refer to Xers as the Jerry Maguire generation. I mean, just think about it. Show me the money. You want something extra from me? Then I expect something extra in return from you that for just because I went above and beyond. Working long hours so that I can tell people that I worked longer hours is not a reward. Time with my family? That's my reward. Poor planning on your part? Not an emergency on mine. Now, one other characteristic that shows up in Xers is innovation and entrepreneurial behavior. I want you to keep in mind that Silicon Valley wasn't started by all those raucous millennials who occupy the place today. It was started by boomers and Xers. Okay, I think this is a good place to stop and give you a break. In part two, we're going to start with the millennials and then go on to the plurals and we'll end with some recommendations about how to take advantage of these generational insights. I'll see you there, and thank you for listening.